Hello and welcome to episode 92 of season 2 of the Search with Canada podcast. I am your host, Jack Chambers-Ward, and joining me this week, it is the one, the only, Ashwin Balakrishnan. Ashwin and I were talking all about why he thinks people should not be fighting Google when it comes to Google Ads and PPC, and the right ways to go about optimizing and handling PPC using third-party apps in 2023. As you know, if you've ever listened to the show before, I am not a PPC expert. I've dipped in my toe in it a couple of times over the years, but Ashwin really knows what he's talking about, and we're going to dive in some really, really interesting questions and answers all about PPC and how to do it right in 2023. Before I get to my interview and discussion with Ashwin, I'd like to say a huge thank you to this podcast sponsor, Systrix. You can go to systrix.com SWC. You can go and check out some of their free tools, including the href lang validator, the SERP snippet generator, and if you want to get Instagram hashtags, they also have an Instagram hashtag generator as well. Speaking of tools from Systrix, I'm going to be talking about one of their new features to probably my favorite single part of the Systrix keyword experience. So once you're logged into Systrix, go to the keyword section and it is the compare SERPs button right in the bottom left corner of your screen. And you basically can compare SERPs throughout time. Cool, right? Makes sense. You can do this so it's like, oh, how has the SERP changed over the last six months or how has the SERP changed? And they have these really fantastic snapshots of how the SERP looked, how things have changed. You get a nice little arrow description of like, oh, this has gone up by three points. This has gone down by all this kind of stuff, the kind of stuff you'd expect from a cert comparison thing, right? What you now can do is three data points, not just two, not just a snapshot from two separate times, three separate times. And this is really, really interesting to see. The example uh, the Systrix guys passed over to me was the keyword Nokia or Nokia, if you're in America, the, the phone, the mobile phone brand. And to see how much the SERPs have changed from 2015, that's right, we have eight years of data just at a glance here all the way through to 2023 and then how much they have changed in the last few months so we're doing october 2015 all the way through to june of 2023 and then through to august of 2023 and would you believe it there is more serp changes between june and august of this year than there is in the last eight years from 2015 all the way through to 2023. I think that's a really, really interesting way of looking at data. Getting three different points, I think, makes a huge difference in terms of drawing conclusions and building correlations and stuff like that. And it's an expansion on, like I said, probably my favorite part and my mo single most used part in my day-to-day -day job as an SEO when it comes to using the Systrix toolbox. So like I said, you can go to systrix.com, go to SWC, you can get a free trial, which includes the fantastic compare SERPs feature. It's down in the bottom left. So you click on keywords right at the very top, then click bottom left, compare SERPs. You type in your keyword and you can select three historical points in time. So in the past and up to present day, they have very, very fresh data for all of their keywords and track back across three different time points. It's brilliant. It's really, really useful. And like I said, if you're discussing with a client how a particular SERP has changed or you're thinking that something has changed and you're not sure, oh, 
I remember seeing the SERP looking like this six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, whatever it was. You can now get concrete evidence and data with nice little green and red up and down arrows to demonstrate that for you and your client. So I highly, highly recommend you go and check out the new Compare SERPs feature with up to three time data points on systrix.com slash SWC. Thank you once again to Systrix for sponsoring the podcast. My guest for this week is the head of marketing at Optimizer. You may recognize him from the Wix SEO Hub search engine journal, being a top 50 PPC influencer, thanks to the amazing team over at Marketing O'Clock, and also being the host of the Search Marketing Academy, the one and only Ashwin Balakrishnan. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I know we were just talking about this before we started recording. It's nice to finally actually have a conversation. You and I have gone back and forth on Twitter and LinkedIn many times, and We've talked about everything from heavy metal to D&D and SEO and PBC and all kinds of other stuff. So it's really great to actually sit down and finally have a conversation with you, man. Likewise. I mean, I've been working remote for several years, so I really appreciate these chances to get to uh, have a conversation with the people that I've come into contact with and build relationships with. So super happy to be on. Absolutely. I'm really happy to have you on. And I know you had my fellow Search with Canada crew, Mark Williams-Cook, on your show, the Search Marketing Academy, a few months ago. So if you haven't already checked that out, listeners, I will put a link for that episode in the show notes so you can go and check out Mark and Ashwin having that conversation as well. Before we get into this week's topic, which I'm very excited to talk about because, folks, it is a PPC episode this week, which is not something I get to say very often. So I've got an expert in to talk all things PPC because Lord knows I'm not a PPC expert. So we'll be diving into that. We do have another controversial hot topic to be talking about, and that is Baldur's Gate 3. I know you and I are both D&D fans, we're both nerds, we're both video game players, and you messaged me a little while ago saying, hmm, I've got some hot takes, I've got some potentially controversial opinions on Baldur's Gate 3, because it seems to be pretty much universally acclaimed by everyone, right? It's a game of the year contender, that kind of thing. So hit me with some hot takes of Baldur's Gate 3. What, how are you feeling about Baldur's Gate 3 at the moment, Ashwin? So overwhelmingly, I feel positive about it. Okay, good. <laughs> with that out of the way. And now let me preface this by saying that I play on PS5, right? So same here. Number one issue I have is the more you progress in the game, the worse performance seems to get. And I'm at a point now in Act 2 where like there's drops in frame rates, there's stutters, there's clipping through walls and stuff like that. And overall, I think it's just taking away from a really rich, beautiful experience. I've had I've had a similar kind of experience actually with the performance. I clipped through a like the the craggy rock bits you can climb. That's like a kind of a little ladder, and one of my characters just got stuck. And I was like, "Okay, cool. I can't climb it. I can't move them. They are just in the world now." I had another option. Um, try not to spoil anything. In the Druid Grove area, you can end up in a fight by accident with somebody because they're trying to solve your issue and you say, ah, oh, no, 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 leave me. And they say, oh, well, I'll kill you. And then you get into a fight with them. And uh, they close the door magically behind you. And yep. one of my characters got locked like into the door, not just behind the door, in the stone of the door. So the three remaining party members had to fight this Druid character. I was very low level. I was not prepared. We all died, but they were set on fire. So they died. So everyone died and one character was left. 
stuck in a door, unable to open the door or do anything. So I was like, uh, it's a cool story, but like, that's kind of <laughs> game breaking. Like, <laughs> I didn't have as much of a game breaking issue, but it was the same place for me, the Druid Grove. Um, there is this one part where there's a character, an NPC who is confined to their location for certain mm. re- reasons. And it's the same thing. Like it's a, it's a hidden wall and you have to enter that area consciously. Um, same thing happened on the way out. One of my party members got stuck in between the door, like literally right in the door. Yeah. yeah. And it was basically, <laughs> I can either abandon this person or I can <laughs> reload about 45 minutes of progress and kill the illusion and stuff like that. So those little things take away from the experience, but overall, I do feel like it's a really well-developed and extremely well-written game. Yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the writing. It, I, I think it helps that I'm really familiar with the setting from running a campaign in that setting in TND for years and years and years. So when people mention a particular location or a, like a, a, a god of the pantheon, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. Oh yeah, I know that. So that kind of helps. I think having that D&D basis does help in a lot of ways. But I know a lot of people who have never played D&D who are playing it for the first time and still having an amazing time and really, really enjoying it. So you can kind of enjoy it from both sides, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think Faerun is probably uh, Forgotten Realms at a much bigger level, but Faerun especially is probably the best place for somebody who's new to D&D to begin with mm. because it has a lot of the archetypal and classical D&D elements that you would expect, types of characters, types of classes, types of monsters. So it's a really, I feel it's a wonderful um entry point and with Baldur's Gate 3 especially I, I see a lot of parallels between what Elden Ring did for the Souls-like genre making it mainstream and what BG3 is doing to make uh, D&D more widely accepted and enjoyed as well yeah. so credit to them for that absolutely I think it's a fascinating thing like I said, you're totally right that it's kind of breaking out into the mainstream a bit and most people would not touch like the classic CRPG type stuff that you would encounter in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 or the Pathfinder games that have came out in the last few years. Like Baldur's Gate 3 is smashing any of that in terms of sales. And there are loads of fantastic CRPGs that are super dense and super detailed and stuff, but they do not just, they just don't have that sheen and that production quality. And you can really feel Larian Studios' love and appreciation for the setting, for the mechanics, for everything. And I think it really kind of, elevates itself through all of its fantastic performance in terms of acting and things like that in terms of the graphical performance for a lot of it as well it looks better than so many other crpgs and i think that helps a lot of people not just playing these kind of top down you can barely see your character kind of maps where you can actually zoom in and you know conversations are dynamic it's not just a talking head and some text everything is fully voice acting everything is like feels living and breathing in a way that i think a lot of crpgs don't to people who aren't experienced with that genre right yeah and even the little things like the dice rolls and stuff like that oh, the dice rolls so cool it's so simple it's so cool <laughs> it is it's such a little thing that makes a huge impact like with Baldur's gate 2 you would get a little line of text in your command console that all right this is your attack roll or whatever but just being able to roll for initiative on on a bunch of things it's just it's it's really game-changing but we've said a lot of nice things about BG3, and I want to give you my hot take. Please do. Please um, do. So I, I fully accept that at my current stage in life, I, I no longer have two, three, four hours to sit down and play video games at one stretch. If I do, it's like maybe once a month. Um, and so maybe 
I haven't had a chance to build the opportunities to enjoy them. And I'm not saying they're badly developed. I'm not saying they're badly acted, but I don't like a single NPC companion in this game so far. Oh, wow. There's not a single one that I look at and I say like, <laughs> like in BG2, you had Minsk, you had Viconia, yeah. you had Anuman, like they were annoying, but you would want to explore the story. And in this, there are more characters that I would rather not deal with than actually give them a chance. And I absolutely detest Asterion. Um, oh, me too. Me too. I can't yeah. stand Asterion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is so polar. So I'm playing a Bard Warlock Gif Yankee at the moment. So that's my, my, for my first character. I'm sure I will play it in the future with a different build at some point. But I'm trying to kind of be the... I'm doing the nice thing. I'm trying to be the good guy. I'm kind of chaotic good is kind of my leaning. If if you're familiar listeners out there with with typical alignments for D&D and stuff, that's kind of the vibe I'm going for. So I'm kind of clashing with Lazelle. She's another Gith Yankee. So there's that whole dynamic there. That's been very interesting for me. And then having Karlak be this kind of chaotic good, like bad, bad history, but trying to do the right thing now kind of thing kind of works for me. And I also have Shadowheart just hovering around doing her thing. I'm not a huge fan of Shadowheart, but Lazelle and Karlak have kind of resonated with me the most in terms of like the the NPCs that have, that have bounced off my character really well. I don't get Asterian. Gale is annoying. Will is boring. Like, yeah, yeah. I agree with you on, on, for the most part on a lot of the NPCs. Yeah. And I, I'm a stone dwarf paladin. So mm. Asterian and I, we we do not get along. It's... it's <laughs> You'd be breaking notes pretty quickly. <laughs> I bring him in and out of my party, and I feel like it's just a matter of time before one of us kills the other. It's just, it's just feel, the clock I feel, like, I feel like with all the radiant damage and him being a vampire, you might win that. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't got to radiant damage yet, so lucky for him. <laughs> but, keep, but keep an eye out, Asterion. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. Anyway, we should... Talk probably talk about some PPC. I'm sure plenty of the listeners have never played Baldur's Gate. If you haven't listened, go and go and check it out. If you're into video game stuff, we both highly recommend it, despite us complaining about these characters. But let's go from NPCs to PPC, shall we? There's a little segue for you. That was a that was a neat little segue. I'm quite proud of. And uh, we'll talk about again something that I think is a pretty controversial topic with a lot of the antitrust trial stuff that has been going on with Google, the auction manipulation stuff. I know we'll be diving into as well. It's been a pretty hot topic, and I know Mark covered this when he was with you on the Search Marketing Academy, talking about how we here at Canada have been kind of dialing down a lot of our PPC stuff. But I know, speaking to you, speaking to your colleague Nava Hopkins over at Optimizer as well, like you two are two of my favorite PPC people to discuss this kind of topic and, and have the nuance and the detail and the understanding from your experiences. So let's dive into why you think PPCs that resist Google Ads are set to fail essentially and that's going to be our topic for this week so i'll kind of hand it over to you a little bit mate and and dive into why you want to talk about this topic right now and, and why we kind of want to bring it to the show yeah so first things first i don't think anyone can escape the fact that google is implementing more and more automation and machine learning and ai into their product offering on the ad side and the same is true in organic search as well. By the way. <laughs> I mean, it's getting there. It's definitely yeah. getting there. Yeah. Um, but with ads, particularly when you're running campaigns, especially for e-commerce advertisers with Performance Max, you don't really have 
too many options. It's either you play the game the way Google wants you to play it, or you get substandard results, right? There's really only two options there. And one of them helps you make money and the other one costs you money. So it's pretty evident which one people are going to have to come around to. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to cast judgment on whether this is right or wrong. All I'm saying is that you can't fight it. And I see a lot of advertisers still running. You know, I don't, I don't know if you want to call them hacks or shortcuts or mm. workarounds, but like there's only so long that you can do this. So a good example is when Performance Max came out, it would serve initially on every channel, every ad network, and then people found a way to turn it into a pseudo smart shopping campaign. Is basically you would leave the creative assets out and only give it a product feed. And it worked for a while, but now Google, um, what we're seeing from many of our customers as well is that Google has turned that switch off. So you can no longer do a feed only performance max. So all these things that people find as exploits and workarounds and ways to game the system, they are eventually going to get patched out. You know, if you think about it in gaming terms, it's eventually going to be coded out of the system. So if you continue to go down that path and your agency or your team's processes are baked into finding workarounds instead of the systems and the processes that are going to help you play ball with Google's AI, that transition when you're forced to make it is going to be much more painful and it's going to cost you a lot more money at that point. So rather than allowing Google to pull the rug out, just ease into it bit by bit. You can bring clients on board. You can explain to them what's happening, what's changing. It's a much better way of handling the transition than just stepping back and saying, I'm going to keep doing things the old way. And when Google takes it away, then I'll figure a solution out at that point. I think that there's a similar conversation happening organic as well, right? But so many people, like you said, trying to do the little shortcut hacky things we hear so much about from these SEO gurus and growth ninjas and whatever weird job title they want to give themselves this week. But I think you're totally right from what from speaking to, you know, some of the PPC team here at Candor and speaking to other people in the industry, that seems to be a an even stronger feeling in the PPC industry, right? From everything that Google is doing and the shift towards a lot of Pmax campaigns and the kind of encouragement from Google to do what we tell you, essentially. We say this so much on the show from an organic point of view, and I think it applies here in PPC as well, is you're fighting a losing battle if you're fighting against Google and you're on their platform. They have full control over that thing and you are not going to be able to you know, outsmart one of the biggest tech companies in the history of the world. You're not going to be able to outsmart somebody who controls their own platform and can just switch all your stuff off at a moment's notice if you get caught doing dodgy stuff, essentially. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I said it when I spoke to Mark, and I'll say it now as well. It's it's better that you excuse yourself from the Google Ads game than continue to, um, you know, employ these hacks and workarounds and stuff like that. It's It's just... I have a lot of respect for, obviously for Mark and you and Candor in general, but I have a lot of respect for any agency leader or any agency founder who says, you know, my future is not in Google Ads. This isn't the way I want to run my campaigns. I feel like there are other platforms that I can um, get better at and get value from my clients from. Good for you. I, I wish you all the best if you want to even like excuse yourself from the paid game altogether. I totally get it. But if you're going to play this game, you've got to play it the way it's meant to be played. Um, and I know a lot of people don't like hearing that. 
it's part of the reason why at Optimizer we build our tools so that you can run your PPC campaigns however you like, whether that's the old way with hacks or the new way. Um, but we clearly do stand behind our belief that you should be leading into AI and machine learning and all of these new tools that Google has to offer. Um, the, the combination of human oversight plus robots is unbeatable. Uh, that's what we believe. But if you're going to do it, then I, I think you should, um, you should really lean into it or step away completely. Um, the middle ground isn't beneficial for anybody. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting thing where we're seeing kind of almost a split in the two sides of the conversation, right? Where you're seeing some other agencies like ourselves kind of taking a step back and then also seeing what you guys at Optimizer are doing and really kind of driving forward and saying, no, this is the right way to do it. There is a way to do it. You know, we have enough clients and enough knowledge and enough way to kind of push through all of the uh, seemingly like endless recommendations from Google and stuff to actually make something that works and makes something that can be beneficial for your clients. So I guess let, let's kind of start off the conversation with what is the process from you guys at Optimizer to go through that and, and think about what you guys are doing from a PPC perspective to make sure your clients are understanding what's going on. Because I've heard, again, a lot of things from Performance Max is very hard to report back to clients and things like that. There's so many kind of like different elements moving. What are the, some of the things you guys are doing at Optimizer to make sure that you're able to communicate these details to clients and make sure that you are seeing, you know, growth. And obviously at the end of the day, the goal is to make money. So to make sure your clients are still making money in 2023. Exactly. So one thing is we never provide advice on specific campaigns, things like that, right? So our job is to create software that allows you to make campaign management easier, less stressful, um, allows you to solve the problems that you have with PPC. And so we try to avoid any kind of specific advice. That said, there are a couple of areas that we have certain recommendations or best practices that we advocate for. And one of those is uh, what we recommend is before you um, go to your clients or your manager and say like, this is what I want to do. This is how much money I need. This is the expectation. Step back and make sure you know exactly what you're supposed to achieve. So if you don't have clarity on goals, objectives, how much you can spend without losing money, that kind of thing, that you should have that clarity first and foremost. And then we advocate you begin with the campaign structure. So with a lot of these automated campaign types like Performance Max and now Demand Gen, um, we are seeing and hearing from our customers that less is more. So the simpler you can keep things, the flatter you can keep your accounts and your campaigns the less you're going to have in terms of uh, having to micromanage little bits and pieces of all these other things. So uh, an example I can give you is um, when building a performance max campaign, if you have too many asset groups, then it becomes difficult for things like budget allocation. It becomes difficult for things like um, reporting and seeing the data. Google tends to apply a lot of these account ratings at the campaign level or the, um, the account level. And so in terms of historical data, what we want to do is make it easier for Google to say, all right, these types of campaigns targeting these types of users with these types of products or services, this is what typically works. This is the type of browser, or this is the type of device, or this is the type of individual 
who benefits from this type of ad, or these are the kind of searches that people have made previously, which indicate that they might benefit from seeing an ad about this topic. The more granular you make it, the more difficult it becomes to spread that across several different campaigns. So keep things light, keep things high level. Um, and the other benefit of keeping things simple is it becomes a lot easier to align with profit margins. So particularly in e-commerce, when you're selling products, when you're selling things with a, a dollar or a pound value assigned to them, um, it becomes a much easier endeavor to go in and reconcile things, to segment your groups of products so that um, you have things with similar profit margins, uh, and then you can afford to spend similar amounts on the advertising so that you can actually make money off the endeavor. A lot of people um, running Google Ads focus on metric like ROAS, but then ROAS doesn't account for things like how much it costs for you to ship the item, how much it costs for you to store the item, returns, all of that stuff. And so account structure goes beyond just the account, right? You're looking at what the business really needs and condensing that into all right, we're gonna have one campaign for this, another campaign for this, and things like that. Obviously, if you're selling tens of thousands of products, you're gonna need a lot more campaigns. But for most advertisers, that's not the case. And we feel that overcomplicating it now in the era where uh, machine learning is pretty much the dominant technology, it just makes things more difficult for Google and they're thereby more difficult for the advertiser as well. Yeah, I think that's, again, another parallel to a lot of what is happening in organic as well, because we, we often think about search intent and kind of grouping products together to make sure they're all matching, you know, the searcher's intent to come through and say, oh, they want to find this particular product in this color or size, well, group them together. And because it's unlikely somebody is going to be searching for a red t-shirt, double XL or whatever it is, they will probably be searching for XL t-shirts and then find red after that. So having ways to group things around, really interesting you bring up profit margin because that's something I've heard a lot of people talk about in terms of PPC, but grouping ads together in terms of that so you can clearly understand the wider return on the overall investment. So the ROI, the, the final, final calculation rather than the ROAS, I think is a hugely important factor in terms of understanding what actual value you're getting from it, what revenue you're getting from it, right? Because so many people, like you said, focus on that initial number, you're like, cool, you've got an amazing grass. And then, oh, but we've got 1,500 of these things stuck in a warehouse somewhere that is, you're not discussing the overheads here, you're not discussing the overall business side of things. And I think that's something a lot of people, myself included, I'm not saying I'm an expert in this, but a lot of people in SEO can learn as well, is understanding the wider business implications of what you're doing and prioritizing particular products and particular services and particular groups inside the businesses a hugely important part and like you said structuring the campaigns around what is important and what is relevant and what is going to make you money makes a huge huge amount of sense exactly and all my friends all of my colleagues and the people that i'm fortunate to learn from who are doing things in you know i don't want to call it the right way but i mean it, it's been proven to work right so the proven way uh, whether it's on the organic side or the paid side or integrated search, it's no longer about running the channel. It's about being a growth partner. And if you're going to be a growth partner, you have to understand what's happening outside of the account, outside of the algorithm, outside of the search engine. And you have to get into the client's business. You have to get into things like overheads. You have to get into things like costs. You have to get into things like 
data? Can you source the data? Is it ethical to use it? Is it legal to use it? If there's a lot of considerations that have to be accounted for that weren't there one or two or three years ago. Yeah, I think data is a huge part of something that people, a lot of people underestimate in PPC right now, how important different aspects, different sides of the data can be to understanding the bigger picture and also then being able to dive down and really get into the nuanced information from a particular product for a particular campaign. From your perspective, from working with the the team over at Optimizer as well, like what is some of the key kind of data inputs and outputs that you're thinking of when it comes to campaigns at the moment? Yeah, so at a highest at the highest level, I think it begins with deciding do you want to embrace AI and machine learning and automation <laughs> on the platform side. Do you want the robot overlords to take over? <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think I think it's better to test it and slowly get into the pool now than be mm. thrown into the deep end when there's no choice. Um, but ultimately, you know, if you're going to do it, I think you should embrace it. So one of my favorite PBC folks, Manaf Kamani, he calls it diving headfirst into new technology. So whenever Google releases something, he's like all in. Like it's not like he just runs these tests blindly. There is a structure to what he does, but he doesn't hold back and say, oh, I'm going to run this, but I'm only going to run it like half-heartedly. Like he really gives it a shot and goes in with an open mind and he's like, all right, I'm going to try to get the best out of it. And I feel like that's the mentality that is common among many of the PPC folks that I speak to, but it's not yet the dominant mindset. Like one thing to keep in mind is optimizer, the circles that we speak to primarily are largely more advanced PPC practitioners, but the vast majority of the industry is not at that level. You know, they either do it because they have to do it or it's part of their wider job responsibilities or they don't have the nuance and the specialization to understand a lot of the other moving parts. So it's got to be made simple in a way that everybody can, can understand it. And I feel like that's one place that Google could have done a much better job is educating its customers on, you know, for example, how does this machine learning make a decision? How does this machine learning choose between two different people searching for the same thing and say, this person is a good fit for this ad and this person is not a good fit for this ad. Um, those are the things I think are missing. But when it comes to data and data inputs, um, I think data inputs and having first party data, if you're going to lead in, if you've made the decision that, um, you know, I'm going to give performance max a shot, or I'm going to give advantage plus on Facebook a shot, whatever it might be, um, without data inputs, it's not going to work for you. And those data inputs can be anything relevant to what you're selling. It can be profit margins. It can be, uh, information on returns. It can be offline conversions. It can be any number of things, but if you don't provide some kind of qualification metric back to Google, particularly in the instance of lead generation, it's just going to keep returning what it thinks is correct. And machine learning, I think at this point, most people understand that it gets better the more you correct it. But if there's no correction that ever takes place, it's going to continue giving you what it assumes is high quality leads, high quality conversions. Um, and so it's just going to keep going down that path. Yeah, um, I, I think that's something a lot of people underestimate is the learning part of machine learning, right? You're totally right that all those little tweaks and the little changes and the updates are what help these technologies understand your products, your services, your data better. 
is going in and doing those little tweaks. You can't just, you don't want to just set it and, and go, right? I think talking about doing tests there is a huge important part of it as well, right? Seeing what works and what doesn't work and understanding, okay, let's assign a small part of the budget to test this new product range or test this new type of campaign or whatever it is, is a hugely important part of getting the wider picture. But like, like you also said, diving into new technologies and, and testing things, you can only do that with actually understanding what data you're giving it and then with the learning side of it adjusting that as you go and don't just like oh we'll set a test for two weeks i'll set it off on day one and then check back on it once it's finished you want to be checking back in on that and seeing how it's going making little tweaks here and there and kind of understanding and helping again helping the machine learn for want, for want of a better phrase to adapt and and change over time right exactly um and the, the framework that we use that was developed by my boss, the CEO of Optimizer Fred Valleys, is the three roles of PPC, which is pilot, doctor, and teacher. So the teacher part we've already covered, which is basically correcting machine learning when it goes wrong and making sure that it's rewarded and informed that things went right when it does make the right decisions. Um, the doctor part is, like you said, diagnosing issues making sure that you apply the right treatments, the right fixes, and get it back to a healthy place if it goes off course. But then the pilot rule. I think the pilot rule is super critical because without monitoring your accounts today, you're never going to be able to fulfill the other two roles. And I would go one step further. Like You said that you should constantly be checking in. I feel like you should be setting up systems so that if something goes wrong, you get notified because you shouldn't have to go back and look every day. Okay, are things good? Is something wrong? But there's so many moving parts, so many things that could potentially go wrong. But if you have a framework, if you say like, these are the things that I need to monitor in this campaign, these are the things that if they go wrong, I can, I'm the only one who can monitor, uh, intervene and manually fix this issue, but I need to know about it as quickly as possible. You need to be able to set up alerts. If you know that when a certain condition is met, a specific action has to be taken, you can set up an automated rule for that to happen, right? But if you don't use these things, then you have to go in and do it manually, which is fine, I suppose, if you're only managing one account, but realistically, <laughs> how many people just manage one account? If you're responsible for like five or six accounts, and then tomorrow your agency leader comes in and says, hey, you're going to be managing twice as many accounts. We're going to give you software that's going to make it easier, but you're going to manage twice as many accounts. If you don't use that software, you're going to have a really difficult time. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a huge part of, again, what we do at Canada. We use things like Content King. Shout out to Content King if you don't use it for SEO monitoring and stuff. Like if you suddenly a page turns into a redirect or has a server error or, you know, even little things like you can, you can set up alerts for like title changes to make sure that your clients are changing the title when you ask them to change the title and things like that having alerts set up for that kind of stuff. Like you said, when a condition is met, you know that an action needs taking. I've, I've worked with people in the past, naming no names, previous agencies and all that kind of stuff, where they literally had a spreadsheet of like, if CPC goes to this, we should do this. And that that was the automation, was writing it down on a on a Google sheet. Like, right, but then you still need to go and check that every, like you said, every day, every other day, whatever it is and manually do that. There is no actual automation to that process. You're just writing down the numbers at that point. And it's all well and good. Like like you said, I, I kind of very simplified it there from my lack of knowledge of PPC of like, 
yeah, just check in every now and then. But actually having the automated part of it take that time away from you that allows you to then spend the time where, you know, your expertise is more valuable makes a huge, huge difference. I think across the board, any marketing industry at this point. Exactly. Exactly. It's about impacting growth where growth happens. And those those little unscalable things that a machine cannot do or apply the creative thinking or ingenuity mm. that humans have. But without, you know, and we call it PPC insurance, you know, these alerts, automated rules. Um, and even, even when we're talking about first party data, like why would you want to upload your um, customer list is one thing, but why would you want to upload um, your profit margins and your return data directly to Google and give them that information? It's a very common objection among PPC practitioners. With third-party software, you can feed that system your first-party data. And it's a system that's incentivized to get the results you want and be on your side, not get money out of you. Um, if you have that kind of system, you can then feed... These are my new ROAS goals. These are my new CPA goals. And your ad platform gets those new goals, but it doesn't get the data that has informed those goals. It doesn't get the rationale, the logic, the information behind why you're choosing to do this. And you don't have to do it yourself, right? And like you said, that leaves you free to go in and actually impact growth at the moment growth happens. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned creative there a little bit as well. So let's dive into a little bit of that. Let's talk about the creative side of things, the messaging, the wording that goes into these ads. What is the kind of strategy? What What is your approach to this with you guys over Optimizer in, in 2023 these days with, with so much AI, with so much machine learning going into this process as well? So I come from a mainline agency background. Um, and so for me, creatives and copy and messaging are still, I still consider them the fundamentals of any marketing endeavor, whether it's organic search, paid search, lifecycle marketing, email, whatever it is. Um, I, I strongly believe that creative landing page and ad text are your three biggest levers in PBC today. Everybody's got access to the same technology. Everybody's using the same automated campaigns. They're benefiting from Google and, um, Facebook's algorithms, it's no different when it applies it to my campaign versus your campaign. The only thing that's different is the messaging, the brand, the positioning, uh, the landing page, copy and, and visual combination. Like all of these things are what set you apart. And that's where the conversion is had. So if you want to get those conversions, this is the best way to do it. So have strong ad copy that resonates with people to get them to click. And then fulfill the promise that you've made in your ad copy on your landing page. Mm. It's it's honestly it's not easy, but it's a very simple process, and it's one that many people still neglect. <laughs> it sounds so simple. Like I did a little chuckle there of like, don't lie to your customers. Like, well, obviously, but like, yeah, it's, it's not as simple as that. It, you made it sound so simple, and it is at the end of the day. Like you said, it's still like I, I know Marcus said this many times. Working in SEO for twenty plus years as he has, like the fundamentals are still the fundamentals. Like not that much has changed. And obviously we're getting towards a lot of shifts in the service with things like SGE and perspectives coming up for organic side of things. And, and so much has changed in the PPC thing as well, but the fundamentals are still the fundamentals. I think you're totally right that your voice, your copy, your messaging is still such a huge part of that. And the defining thing in majority of cases 
that will separate you from so many of your competitors. Like like you said, you've essentially got a level playing field in terms of the majority of the technology you're using, the platforms you're using, all that kind of stuff. How you separate yourself is your voice, your brand's voice, your company's voice, your client's voice, however you bring that forward and incentivize people to click. That is so often the deciding factor, right? Exactly. And I love that you use the phrase level playing field because our internal positioning for this entire line of messaging at Optimizer and the title of Fred's latest book is Unlevel the Playing Field. So it's literally <laughs> it's literally about giving yourself that elevated platform when everybody else is on the same same ground. You know, you want that little extra edge. What is that extra edge? It's very rarely going to be something that comes from your Google Ads campaign or your Google Ads account or your Facebook Ads account. It's got to be something bigger than that. It's got to be something that goes beyond it. And Jack, let me tell you, the bar is so, so low um, <laughs> when it comes to messaging and landing pages. I'm not even talking about the quality of copywriting. I'm just saying little things like giving enough of a crap to actually put in the time and effort to refine those things. They're just neglected across the board. And I have to constantly remind myself that I'm surrounded by experts who do the right things and follow the right steps and do all of this stuff. But 90% of people running Google ads do not give a toss about what's on their landing page. They're not worried about, you know, does what I've promised in the ad text get completed and fulfilled on the landing page? Is there alignment between what I'm saying in my video ad and what I'm showing you in my landing page? Like those little things, not lying to your customers, not clickbaiting them. Like these are just fundamental things that most people do not put into place. So you do it, you're automatically better than the vast majority of the competition. It's it's, it's like, I totally agree with you. I'm in a similar kind of space where you find yourself in this like positive echo chamber of people who actually know what they're talking about and working with people who actually know what they're talking about. And then you realize like most people don't though. Like I know Mark and I talk about this from the from a slightly different perspective of, you know, we look at a SERP or we look at a website and working in SEO, working in digital marketing, working in PPC, whatever it is, you see the internet in a different way than to people who don't work in digital marketing. And I have this conversation with my wife all the time where I'm like, oh my God, this website's unusable. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then suddenly there'll be that moment where she will text me or, you know, spin her phone around and be like, this website is unusable. I'm like, okay. It is broken through to the non like digital marketing crowd, the 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 people who don't do this full time, don't do this for a living, to be like, now site performance is noticeable. Now clickbaity stuff is noticeable. When it gets bad, you really notice it gets bad. And I think that's a, a huge part of kind of understanding how many people are just making stuff up and doing clickbaity crap to get money and then run away as fast as they can. <laughs> Like you said, the bar is fairly low these days and always has been. There's always been spam and rubbish on the internet. It is. It is. It's just completely chock-a-block, isn't it? And for me, being an organic marketer who works in the paid space, my audience being largely PPC marketers, I have to, in my day-to-day -day work, deal with the organic results and all of the black magic that goes on over there. Uh, <laughs> And then I also have to be aware of what's happening on the PPC side and all of these automated campaigns. And I'm just like, there's really not much of a difference, is there? It's literally just whether you're paying for it or whether you're getting it for quote unquote free. Mm. Yeah. Let's finish off on a hot 
PPC topic. When we talk about the, I, I kind of hinted at it earlier on at the start of the show, the recent Google antitrust trial stuff. And especially let's focus on this auction manipulation side of things, because I know the uh, kind of admitted 5 to 10% push up of CPC has been discussed. And then I saw a few other people discussing that it may be even higher than that. There were a couple of articles on search engine land from other people who've experienced like 50, 60, 70, even 100% uh, increase in, in, in some of their cases in terms of auction manipulation. How are you feeling about it from, like you said, and being uh, an overall digital marketer and organic marketer working in PPC and kind of getting a bigger picture of the industry as a whole? How do you think the industry is reacting to that as a whole? So my reaction is largely in line with what I've been seeing. Um, I don't think anybody, I won't say no one is, but I don't think anyone should be surprised by what has <laughs> happened that a multi-billion dollar corporation that is publicly traded and whose primary motive is to generate value for shareholders is finding ways to maximize its revenue and profitability. I don't think anyone should be surprised about that. It is disappointing that this level of subterfuge, if you want to call it that, <laughs> has taken place. And it's not like they set out to completely screw people over, but I think the communication could have been a little better. Like, hey, here's how the auction works. This is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing. And that's where most of the grievance comes from. No one's surprised or even begrudging, at least in my circles, no one's begrudging Google for chasing profitability. But could you not have communicated it better to us so that we understand what's happening? And, and it's not from the point of view of, hey, I pay you a lot of money. You should be telling me how your business works. It's because the things that Google have been doing can affect not just account performance, but it can affect and impact the future of an agency and even individual careers. Because if you're sitting there and thinking, oh, the, the work I've done has caused the performance of this campaign to tank, but it's actually just Google's auction management process working in the background, and you've had absolutely no control over it, that's disappointing. It could have cost people jobs. It could have cost cl um, agencies clients. It could have cost people promotions. It could have cost businesses growth. Like there's a lot of things that get snowballed into the whole process. And so our position on this is that well, you can't really do anything about it or so it feels. You can't do anything to change the way the auction works. But what you can do is build safeguards in place. You can have monitoring. You can make sure that you understand how these different moving parts influence each other so that you work on the right things, you influence the right metrics and stuff like that. And that comes back to what we call PPC insurance again. Um, it's largely about making sure that you have a system in place so that no matter what happens on the technology side of Google Ads, you and your account always operate within the limits that you've set for it. You're not going to be able to create those limits and boundaries for Google Ads within Google Ads because there's a direct conflict between what advertisers want and what Google Ads seeks to achieve. So you do need third-party software, and whether you buy it or build it or subscribe to it, whatever the case might be, you need a third-party there that can create a buffer and, and put some space between Google's technology and your ad accounts. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of... Like we said earlier on, like understanding how Google is using your data and things like that, right? Having that little bit of distance, just enough to 
allow you to still use the platform to its fullest extent, but not give away too much and not get manipulated too much. I know the um, randomized generalized second price auction has been a huge topic as well. So for those of you who don't know, that is uh, a discussion that came out of the antitrust trial where uh, Dishlow, the representative of Google, was talking about how sometimes they flip the first and second uh, like paid ad results and their exact quote was, otherwise Amazon would always show on on top. I was like, yeah, because they've got all the money in the world, I guess. Like, But then do you do that for other ones? And then it becomes a whole discussion of like, so the highest bidder is not the highest bidder anymore. So is that still an auction? How does that work? And I think you're, you're totally right. Like having that distance from Google is the, the approach so many more people need to take, right? I think so many people kind of just dive in head first and just hope for the best and just set up a Google ads account and just, and just kind of go from there. But actually having a process and a strategy and, and working with y- yourselves over at Optimizer and, and other agencies who are doing the right thing and have the tools to do the right thing, more importantly, is such an important part to not get caught up in all of this stuff, right? Like you said, that that insurance for better phrase is, is a really good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. And and the agencies that subscribe to our product, one thing they all have in common virtually is the fact that they live and breathe PPC. Um, they, they really understand the nuances of how campaigns work and what you're supposed to do to get results out of machine learning in the ad platforms and things like that. The average advertiser, I mentioned it earlier as well, the average advertiser doesn't have that. And so for them, there's no way to kind of create these safeguards without a third party um, in the mix. There's no way for them, in, in many cases, they don't really have access to the messaging and the education that they need to build those safeguards, um, right? They don't even know about it in the first place. And so there's, as you alluded to, a huge ethical conversation in place. Like, is this even the correct thing to do? Should Google be more transparent about exactly how the auction works. There's a lot of questions. We're not trying to cast aspersions or judgment on anybody, but the fact is that, you know, this is probably just the first of several revelations that are going to come out of this trial. Um, Rather than being flabbergasted, I think if you work in digital marketing, if this is your area of specialization, you have an obligation to your clients or your, um, your managers or leadership, and certainly an obligation to yourself to educate yourself as much as possible and make sure that you have these different movie pieces in place that will create buffers. Because if you just want to, I don't need to tell people this, but they already know, um, Google does not have the same objectives as an advertiser. Google's out to make money uh, and an advertiser's out to benefit their brand as economically as possible. And so those two things are in direct conflict. And if you rely fully on Google for both running the campaign and protecting the campaign, you're not going to get the results you want. And that's a, that's essentially the source of um, everything. It's a conflict of interest. I think that pretty much wraps us up for a whistle-stop tour around why people should not be resisting Google and why people should be using third-party tools, why people should have a better understanding of actually how Google Ads works. And hopefully 
Google will get a bit more transparent. I'm, I'm not holding out hope for that, but fingers crossed, Google will uh, be more transparent in their future communications and be, be a bit more open about this kind of stuff because otherwise they're going to get in a fair amount more legal trouble as these trials continue because we've got another trial coming up next year as well. So yeah, I think Google's going to be a lot more hot water before it actually sorts itself out. But <laughs> We'll have our eyes on that. Definitely, so. definitely. So if people want to follow up with you, Ashwin, how can they follow you? How can they follow Optimizer? Where is the best place to find you across the internet? Yeah, so the best place to find me is on Twitter at the Copy Trail. So I'm on the Twitter ship until it sinks. It's not looking good, but <laughs> me, I'm, I'm me here. too, man. Me too. <laughs> I've, I've I've met and built relationships with a lot of great people through Twitter. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave until I'm kicked off. Um, but you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm probably the first actual metal pop up when you search for my name. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to follow optimizer, we have a blog where we publish one to two articles a week on average. We also have a pretty robust YouTube channel that we're going to be investing more in over the next year. So we produce PPC town hall, which is uh, panel discussions with search marketing experts. We've also got Search Marketing Academy, which is where I interview people on integrated search, the relationship between SEO and PPC. Um, very cool interviews with people largely who started in something other than digital marketing and found their way to search marketing. So really cool backgrounds and, and reasons why people do marketing and how they do marketing. So it's a very, very human approach to search marketing. Um, but yeah, those, those are probably the best places to find us if you're interested in checking out Optimizer the software. Um, search for us, O-P-T-M-Y-Z-R. Uh, Google search intent will help you find us no matter how you spell our name. <laughs> um, something I've See, learned Google from does, Search Console. Google does work for us after all, who knew? <laughs> it does, man. I, I'm not going to say Google's terrible. Google does a lot of <laughs> things right, and they have a very impressive product. But yeah, look up Optimizer. A lot of the stuff that we're doing is very much in line with what advertisers need today. Um, we've also got a couple of cool things coming up, uh, branching into some other spaces outside of PPC and, um, yeah, hope to share those announcements soon. Awesome. Well, stay tuned for that folks. Like I said, links for everything will be in the description at search.withcanda.co.uk. Go and check them out. Go and follow Ashwin, one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter and LinkedIn and go and check out Optimize as well. I know Nava, Ashwin, all the team there are doing a fantastic job of case studies, blog posts, updates about PPC in general, hugely worth a follow over there. Thank you so much for joining me, Ashwin. It's, like I said, at the start of the show, it's been a pleasure to not only chat Baldur's Gate 3, but actually talk about some digital marketing as well. Thank you for having me on. This was, this was fun. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thank you. Bye. And that wraps us up for this week's episode of Search with Canda. I hope you very much enjoyed my conversation with Ashwin. Apologies if you're not a Baldur's Gate or Dungeons & Dragons fan. I know we did talk about that for the first few minutes. We couldn't help ourselves. We've been wanting to talk about that for a very, very long time. If you are, please do come and chat with us on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. I'm sure Ashwin will be happy to talk SEO, PPC, Baldur's Gate, D&D, Dark Souls, Elden Ring, all the cool nerdy stuff that I am also very very much into Ashton and i also very much love heavy metal as well so if you have any metal to recommend to either of us please do let us know as well as you can see 
Asher and I have a lot of crossover with our interests even outside of SEO, PBC and digital marketing. I'll be back next week, joined once again by the brilliant duo of Miriam Jessier and Stephanie Walter talking all about the most spooky FAQs we've ever seen. Because it's our Halloween spooktacular, baby. We're back almost exactly a year from when we were last together. The terrifying trio of me, Stephanie, and Miriam will be back again to do our Halloween special. It won't feature any bright SEO people. I've already done that episode like we did last year. It's us talking all about FAQ. Stephanie has some brilliant points talking from a UX perspective. Of course, Miriam is a hugely experienced SEO as well. And you'll hear us talking all about some of the worst FAQs we've ever seen from other sites, government sites, client sites, all kinds of stuff. And we'll also give you some tips and best practice thoughts about FAQs and how to present them to your customers and users in 2023 as well. So stay tuned for that next week. Of course, Mark and I will also be back with another episode of Systrix with Canada. That's our monthly news recap show. That'll be on Systrix's YouTube probably by the time you hear next week's episode. That'll be on the YouTube and then it will be next week's episode following that on the podcast feed as well. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Have a lovely week. <laughs>